Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with broadcaster, author, and critic, Torre. Since the early 90s, the Massachusetts native has been a mainstay in the media. From music to politics, he shared his insight, his essays in magazines and websites, his novels, and his hosting programs on various cable networks, has allowed him to be ubiquitous on the media scene. His latest novel, The Ivy League Counterfeiter, was recently released, and his latest show, Masters of the Game, can be found on the Grio TV. We started out by talking about the changing face of media. Hey, man, first of all, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. Excited to have you. Come on, man. I've been... <laughs> watching you and molding after you for so i mean like you were the guy who was like i can be august and serious <laughs> at news and yet have that black flavor to it so we know you know we're at home this is our guy but he's not coming out of his face to where the white people are like this is not appropriate so like <laughs> this is the flavor and the style that you could take to a cnn or msnbc cuz the our people know like He's still down with us and right. the white people know he's serious and professional. Like you were setting that standard, man. It was I appreciate that, man. I, you know, I get that a lot because I've been doing this since my hair was black. So I, I, I appreciate that. But, but let me ask you that. That's where I was going to go anyway. You know, it's interesting. You're about a decade younger than I am. And I would say that m my group, which there aren't many left who are still doing it. Many of them have retired and all, but, Mine was the last, I think, bastion of that old school journalism. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. when your group came in, there was this melding of 
what you could be and what was acceptable. And, you know, you could be hard news and you could be pop culture. And there was this cross of the two, uh, which was really fought in, in my generation. What do you think about journalism today and, and well, what we see? One of the, I mean, one of the big differences I see between a lot of folks of your generation and, and mine in terms of broadcasting, you guys felt like the broadcasters should be objective. And mm-hmm. so you shouldn't be foisting your opinion on us. We didn't know how Walter Cronkite voted, uh, Dan Rather, Peter Jennings. We didn't know how we we're supposed to not know how they voted. And I don't think they're the way they covered things uh, suggested that. By the time I came around, it was kind of like, I need you to know where I what I feel, because I'm not giving you the precise, honest portrait if you have no idea where I stand. Um, and I'm not giving you the proper context if I say both of these things are, both these ideas are reasonable. The left side says this, the right side says this. Now, that is not a criticism of the prior generation. I think you guys came up in a time, especially in terms of politics, when the left and the right had a morally equal value. And by the time I got in the air, in a news context, there was that was not at all the case. Uh, the right was already going completely off the deep end. Uh, there have already been books written about how the right was going off the deep end. And so, you know, to just say, well, the left says this and the right says this, I'm like, that would be dishonest because we have to put it in a context and sh- talk to the viewers about what's really going on. Um, and especially since then, the the right continues to lie and gaslight much more and work off of faux outrage, where if I'm not saying this that they are saying is not true, then I'm not serving you. And in that, I was looking at, you know, Rachel Maddow, Lawrence O'Donnell, Chris Hayes, Melissa Harris Perry, Joy Reid, who were doing that similar sort of thing um, and and letting you know, like, audience, I I can tell you what's really going on here. I thought that was a more effective relationship between media and the audience rather than just saying, rather than just pretending like I'm a window pane, just showing you what's going on. I worry now that we've gone too far on the other side, that all we get is opinion and it's hard to parse and parcel quote facts. I put that in quotes. Um, from what we see, because the other side will say, not saying either is objective, gaslighting comes from the left and, you know, it's it's just opinion and, and the like. It, is there room to find more middle ground or or do you think that there's no room because the extremes don't want to find the middle? I, you know, I, I don't I, I don't think that both sides in the political conversation are doing the same thing or approaching it in the same way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for for example, for a CNN to have a straight laced anchor come on and say, you know, there's two sides to this issue. Here is one person from one side and one person from the other side. And, and let them both say whatever they want to say without fact checking them in real time. That uh, that does not serve the audience well. It does not have people walking away with more information about the situation, especially when you're talking about something that's really fraught, like climate change, uh, you know, police violence, mass incarceration. 
where the right is going to come on and lie and fear monger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, there's nothing as a lefty that I believe where there's a community of experts saying that's not true. Most of the major positions on the right, the community of experts who objectively study these sorts of things say that's not accurate in terms of their approach to climate science, mass incarceration, police violence, race in general, uh, abortion. We could go on and on. Taxation, voter ID and the entire approach to voting. They are constantly saying the, the, the big lie. They are constantly saying things. And, and dealing in things that are not true. So like, I, you know, when I was at MSNBC, I experienced people who were extremely smart, who were working very hard to get it right and to tell the truth as best as they knew it. Fox News is performance art. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think it's right to put both of them in the same sentence. I mean, I've, I've long felt like you know, saying MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News is like saying, you know, the LA Clippers, the LA Lakers, and the Harlem Globetrotters. They're doing something <laughs> fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. I think CNN wants to be a center position. I think sometimes their setups, their segments aren't helping the public. You know, John Oliver had an, a visualization of this. I think it was in his first season where he was like, you know, well, we could do the climate debate like this. Here's one scientist from one side and here's one scientist from another side. But that would not be accurate. This would be accurate. And then like 200 people with lab coats came in and were like, these are all the people who are saying climate science is real. And here's the one guy who says it's not. And, you know, what they didn't say is, by the way, that guy is bought and paid for by Coke Industries. He's not really telling you what he really thinks. He's telling you what Coke Industries wants you to know. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, like so many issues are are like that. And I think people are being naive if they think both sides are lying. Both sides are equally bad. No, that is not the case. I talk to a lot of people who are just tired of the noise, period. And mm-hmm. even those who are clearly liberal feel that both sides have gone, by no means I'm saying equally, by no means am I saying equally, but have gone too far. You know, when you when you turned on CNN, who tried to play it down the middle when, they, when clearly they weren't for a while. Sometimes it can be just a sprinkle of context, right? Like I could yeah. give you a fact and you would misunderstand where that fits and just adding context that's accurate. And like for once, somebody gave me a very small, what we would call a reader. We're not going to talk about it. It's just a 30 second, six sentences in the prompter, read straight to prompter, just bang, bang, bang. And we go on to the next thing. And the reader led with something like six people got shot in Chicago over the weekend. Now we know, and this is on MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. We, we know what that know means. What this suggests, right? And this has been a right-wing, purposeful, concerted effort to turn Chicago into this thing where you don't even have to add the the rest of the... You already know the stuff. You already know that Chicago is the symbol for the failure of gun laws, black wildness, gangs, lack of fathers, all those sort of things. But, you know, like I study a lot of these statistics, especially a lot of these crime statistics, 
Um, you know, Chicago is not per capita. Chicago is not top 20 most homicidal cities in America. Right. So th so the notion of Chicago is very problematic. It's the third biggest city in terms of the number of people. So those numbers are going to be higher. Um, but per capita, it's not top 20. Um, you know, but also at that time, I just happened to know that Chicago was in a 20 year slide downward in its homicide rate. And criminologists want you to compare a city to itself over time. It's not there's too much noise to compare Chicago's murder rate to Flint or D.C. or mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise within that. So these six murders over the weekend in the summer. But the city continues to be on trend for the lowest homicide rate in 20 years. So I just added just that sentence. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to say I refuse to do this read, but I just want to add this so that we're not throwing out dog whistles and moving on. And they, uh, after a little argument, they allowed me to add that little bit of context. And I felt very comfortable with that, with that conversation then. So sometimes it's just that. There's an interesting point. One of the things that I was going to talk to you about, and there's this quagmire that all of us find ourselves in. If you're African-American person of color, a woman mm. to, a, to a lesser degree, um, working at a white owned media outlet, feeling that you can indeed uh, bring the authentic black point of view. We see it with Tiffany Cross. We saw it with Melissa, you know, you, you see it. There is this sense of, well, they are giving me a paycheck and it is theirs. And whether we like to admit it or not, they do have some sense of, hey, we decide at the end of the day what goes across these airwaves. Where do you think we are on that? And where do you think we are with the idea of truly having black owned media that can compete? Because if, I mean, you know this, I say this for the audience more than anything. If you look across, whatever we want to call media today, because that has changed. But when we really talk about black owned, there are so few, it's frightening. Um, I, it's an amazing question and a gigantic question. Let me go backwards a little bit. Um, I'm at a black media company now, The Grio. I'm a host and a creative director there. We're doing a show now called Masters of the Game, where I interview amazing people, Debbie Allen, Tyler Perry, Keenan Thompson, um, many others, um, you know, you can see immediately a shared set of references of values. When I say I want to write something in defense of this person or that person, there's, I don't have to prove the point of why are we talking about that person? I remember once, man, uh, uh Melissa Harris Perry had Nikki Giovanni on her show on MSNBC. And her team was situated just like six feet away from our team. And um, I was like, wow. And I heard, wow, that was great. Let's have Sonia Sanchez on the show. Because <laughs> I know Sonia Sanchez. Mm -hmm. I can call her and her son will answer and it'll be like, yo, okay, great. Let's get, you know, mom on the show. And um People were like, who's that? Who? Yeah. And and not with a sense of, oh, the host is putting out a name. I need to respect and figure right. out who that is. I don't know who it is. You have to prove it to me. Now, I had, uh, you know, 
enough uh, persuasiveness to get that to happen. And we had Sonia on the show and she was fantastic. But the point is that there, that I had, you know, at the Grio, you know, or, you know, in another life, if I was at the root, like we wouldn't have to, you know, I, I got to sit down with Sonia Sanders. Great. Do it. Love it. Go for it. You know, I want to write, you know, 2000 words about Octavia Butler, like fantastic. Mm-hmm. Go do it. Um, but yeah, when you're at white institutions where, you know, I, I was at BET, did, I don't think we overlapped at BET. We did, no, I don't think so. And then, and I'm at the Grio now. Uh, but but beside that in my career, I've been at a lot of white institutions, CNN, MSNBC, uh, Rolling Stone, some others. You do get into that conundrum you're talking about. Do I represent black people or am I here representing myself? What does that mean? Could I be critical of black people in this milieu when uh, others are not? Like, would that be okay? Like, you know, you don't know. I remember, I remember I talked to one, let's say, I don't want to give away his secret, but there was one brother who was like, I don't want to communicate who it was. I don't maintain the secret, but he told me this in confidence. Um, Cause you remember after Obama's first debate with Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. where Mitt Romney looked like he'd had caffeine for the first time in his life. And he <laughs> And Obama was like extra muted and chill. Yeah, like yeah. guy's an idiot. He doesn't know anything right. like really. I'm this. And, you know, so much of the presidential horse race conversation becomes very theatrical and Romney was more theatrical and Obama. But I was like, Romney lied about all his positions and he showed that he knows nothing about uh, wasn't. Yeah. What was really going on in the world? Like, I, I'm not saying that Romney won that debate. And the the group think of the room in our pre-meeting was like, that's insane for you to say that. And you will be seen as just supporting Obama because he's black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, you're really risking your credibility with the audience, perhaps with us, if you say that. So now I'm kind of stuck of like, okay, begrudgingly. I'm going to say this because I don't feel comfortable. And there was another brother who's bigger than me at another network who said the same thing, that he absolutely saw Obama as having won that debate. And yet he did not feel like he could go on and buck conventional wisdom of the day and say the opposite because people would be like, oh, you're just supporting him because you're black. And yeah, there's times when I do want to step out and be like, okay, there is a black person in the room and I'm going to stand up. You know, I believe it was Rakia Boyd uh, had been shot after driving her car into a strange neighborhood in Michigan. She knocked on somebody's door for help and the person shot her and killed her. And, you know, there were people in our, in our group who were like, do we really need to report this story? And I was like, hell yeah, we do. And that was a bit of a professional back and forth. But, uh, you know, I ended up getting my way. But, you know, so there I was like, you know, I got to stand up for, you know, the the, the brothers and sisters and what we want to hear. But I don't want to be predictable as like a cheerleader for black people. Right. But I did feel always very sensitive about being critical of Obama because other folks on the network and and on Fox 
were criticizing him completely unfairly and over aggressively. So I'm like, well, in the context of that, of the general thing you're getting from media in, in total, I, I don't want to be like, well, I'm going to give a reasoned critique of Obama. Like, uh, like, you know, so you, you're I'm constantly weighing my responsibility that I feel, my affinity that I feel to the community, and then what I feel within myself of what is, you know, what I think as a news person needs to be. So yeah, you're constant at a, at a white organization. You're constantly weighing those sort of things. At a black organization like the Grio, you feel liberated. You feel like the people around you. I can trust their judgment, right? Um, I, you know, it, it, I, I know that what they're, you know, my God, you know, once I was in um, after, uh, and it's tiny things, right? After uh, Freddie Gray was murdered by the police. We were in Baltimore for a week. And there was a moment when we were walking up and down the street, uh, just pulling people for, for MOS, for man on the street commentary. And there was this woman who was just like a, a, a person of the street who was, she didn't know who I was, but she was like, oh baby, you're so cute. Oh my God. <laughs> and because she established this physical proximity, the producer was like, let's do an interview with her. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. and she goes, ready? Let's go. And I did. I asked her one question and then shoot her away. And I was like, can you not see that she's clearly in the midst of a heroin high? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I, I didn't, I couldn't see that. I'm like, that's obvious. And like, I need I know if you send that back to New York, somehow that will end up yeah. on the air. Yeah. So, you know, so you you gravitated toward that person who was ridiculous rather than uh, somebody who seemed more appropriate. Your career has been very interesting because you've been a little bit of everything. And, uh, you know, on the journalism side, you've, you've been a host, a writer podcast do essays was that something that you always wanted to do in terms of the breadth of what you were doing um i don't know or, that or was I, it not so, conscious at all no i don't think it was I, I don't think it was conscious from a law from a from a design i think that i established myself within music journalism but had wanted to talk about politics and given that opportunity then I sort of, you know, learned more and got able, was able to do that. Um, went to graduate school at Columbia in creative writing and learned how to write fiction. And then it was like, well, now I feel like I'm good at this craft and I can do anything. And, you know, I can do a TV show. I can do a radio show. I can do a podcast. Um, you know, I, I can do a novel. I can do a nonfiction book. You know I mean? Like you start to get like, I think I can do anything, you know, I've always felt confident within this media realm, whatever you got, I I bet I could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember once being on CNN when I was still a guest at CNN um, and I'd done a ton of segments by then. um, And I was on with this, this, this white woman who had done a ton of segments and she was a fantastic guest as well and a friend and she just happened to be wearing a skirt so you could see the knees. And I noticed we were chatting in between the, in the break. 
And, you know, it was one way. And then I noticed when the red light went on, I could see the goosebumps on her knees, mm-hmm. you know, and you wouldn't have known from listening to her talk because she's professional. But I'm like, my heart rate is not changing. My plant, my palms are not clammy. Like I'm really not having a nervousness. Like I, I know that we're on air. So we're, you know, like right. excited, but I'm not nervous. I was never really nervous uh, about all of that. I, I remember one of the first times I was on, they had me in a split with Al Sharpton. So it was like, you know, we're going to kind of debate this issue. It must have been Fox. Um, and we're going to have Al Sharpton and this kid, Torre. And I'm like, and I remember thinking, okay, you're playing one-on-one basketball with Kobe. You better go. Because <laughs> Al Sharpton's going to eat you up if you don't go. And, you know, I never would embarrass the brother. I know him from way back. I did a profile on him uh, for Playboy magazine in the 90s. So he's been a buddy of mine for a long time. Um, but, you know, like respectfully, professionally, I'm like, I'm going to bring my knowledge and my funk to this issue. Um, and just always felt comfortable, whether it was with a pen or a microphone or a camera. I'm like, I could do this. And I think that's part of what makes some of us who do this well work, that we're that we are confident that so you communicate to the audience I am, I, I can do this. Like you can roll with me, right? You can come with me. Mm-hmm. It's being a guest and a host are different. And just because mm-hmm. you're a good guest doesn't mean you'll be a good host. Um, answering the questions that are peppered at you is one skill and holding the whole thing together is a different skill. Yeah. And yeah. you have to believe, the guest doesn't have to believe anything except when they ask me my questions, I'm going to answer them. The host has to be relaxed, charismatic, warm, you know, in, exciting and gripping, bring, you know, enticing. So, you know, you, you have to hold the whole thing together. Yeah. Um, and you have to believe that you belong there in the chair in front of the camera because, you know, there's several hundred thousand people through that camera and there's a red light on. It's live. You better go. And you got to believe in yourself. All right, let's get to before we let you go. Um, where you where you are today with two two great projects? You mentioned we'll start with Masters of the Game for uh, the Grio. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Grio TV, Byron Allen and them lets me do a show called Masters of the Game, where I do hour long one on ones with amazing, interesting, inspiring black people, wise folks who know a lot, and we're trying to get some of your brilliance and some of your knowledge and some of your craft out so that perhaps the listener can go, Oh, like I can apply that to my life or I can pass that nugget on to my son or daughter or grandson or whatever it may be. Um, we had Debbie Allen on the show. Who's amazing. Keenan Thompson, Tyler Perry, um, is coming up. Um, Francis TFO. Um, so, you know, we had some extraordinary folks on the show and just sort of like, it's just an honor to sit with some brilliant folks. Tyler Perry um, talked about how Medea is his mother, but he didn't realize it for a long time, which I found interesting that he's doing a portrayal of his mom 
without fully realizing it until others were able to point it out to him. The other thing that blew my mind, because he and I talked a long time ago about basically me saying, you go too fast. Can you slow down? Like your, your movies are at a certain level of quality because you make them too fast. And, you know, he was like, you know, uh, no, <laughs> screw you. But it was part of a whole, uh, a whole approach to business that he, that he explained fully in this conversation where he talks about if he went to the studio and said, hey, I need $30 million or $20 million, they'd say, okay, sure. But we're going to need to own that if we're going to give you this amount of money. But if he's like, well, can I have $2 million? They might say, oh, okay, you can have that and you can have ownership, right? Because we're talking about an entirely different level of stakes for the studio. So he, he, what he really wants is ownership of the piece. So I will take the budgetary amount that I can get as much as I can get that allows me to keep ownership. That's going to be a lo relatively low amount right? But the ownership is the important part. Now that I have a $2 million budget, when everybody else is making films with 20, 30, $40 million, I got to move this quickly. I got to, you know, I got to do yeah. certain things. So, but because I own it, I'm benefiting far more than it's the, the average. long game. Yes. It's the long game. And you know, the thing he said, when I was pushing him from an aesthetic point of view, he's saying, look, I get people coming up to me every day. You saved my life. I was overweight. I was in a bad marriage. I didn't have the right relationship with God. I didn't have a job. I was homeless, whatever. And I watched your film and I found the information or the inspiration or the motivation, the direction that I needed, the nugget I needed to help me out of that situation. And man, I'm telling you, Quinn Tarantino is not getting that feedback, right? Martin Scorsese is not getting that feedback. And as much as, you know, a film astute like me might come up and say, oh, the way you're doing this is not like, you know, Spike is not getting that. He's like, yo, I'm changing lives over here. So I, I, I'm good with your, you know, uh, with your highfalutin, uh, deconstruction of my film after you finished watching Wes Anderson. I, I'm not interested. Um, and like, hey, you know, you are serving, you are serving folks and they are being, his audience feels spiritually full from those movies. So he's accomplishing something that most other filmmakers are not. Yeah. Let's move to uh, your latest book. Uh, you were telling me about uh, the, the Ivy League counterfeiter. I grew up with this brother who uh, came from the south side of Chicago. We went to prep school together. He goes on to Columbia. Smart guy, charismatic, tough, street, football star, really smart, funny, unforgettable sort of dude. Goes to Columbia. He's a hustler. He's doing his thing. And, you know, he finds a he's in money troubles and he finds a high end copier on the Columbia campus. And his friend says, this copier is like the best copier in the fucking world. And my man says, really? And he puts a dollar on the copier and it comes back perfect. 
And he immediately sees the matrix and is like, I knew exactly what to do. This is a person whose older brother was a professional bank robber. So he had game. Like, this is how you maneuver in the streets. Like, he was not just talking it. Like, he was really, like, educated on, like, this is the street world, right? This is what you do and don't do. So he really had the game already. And now he had the product. He goes out the next day, takes a cab from up in Harlem, Columbia, about five blocks, $5 ride. Here's a fake 20. Cabby gives him $15 in real money. And he's like, oh my God, this is real. Keeps taking cabs all day long, up and down Manhattan, $800. This is really real. He went back, he made $10,000 and starts distributing it in other ways. And we're off to the races. And for several months, he's distributing money every which way he possibly can. Now, there's a lot to this. The, number one, this is not the way that counterfeiting is done. I talked to actual counterfeiters. They laugh hearing this method. We don't photocopy mm-hmm. money. We make plates and we are actually printing. Like you've seen people printing t-shirts. That's how we do it. But this is what he's doing. But the other thing he talks about is that, um, you know, s- spending money gets boring, right? And I know most of us, we have a bad day or whatever, and retail therapy helps us out. But if you kept doing that times a thousand, you would soon be like, this is, a, and you you can't go and buy high-end stuff. You got to buy, you know, crap, you know, because because you're just acquiring a ton of stuff because I'm just trying to break these fake bills. So, you know, he compared it, somebody compared it to Brewster's Millions. Remember the Richard Pryor movie mm-hmm. where he had to spend, I think it was a hundred million to be able to get, I think like a billion dollars or something like that. And he quickly is like, the spending is for the birds. This is horrible. Like just having to spend all the time. Um, The other thing too, that we're trying to work through is like, brother was like Ivy league high school, Ivy league college. He was smart. He knew the path. He had some networking people respected him. And yet he actively chooses the underworld. And when, even when people are telling him like, yo money, you need to stop that. He's like, no, I want to be part of that. I want to be in the hood. I want to be in the mud with those guys. And we all know where that leads. And yet he's choosing that. Um, it's an extraordinary story. The way that he's brought down underlines a familial betrayal that will be shocking to readers. Um, and you would think that going to prison for a relatively small amount of time would cure you of whatever it was that made you want to go into them, into the mud, into the underground. No, sir. No, no, sir. We got out, we got back on our feet and then we went back. <laughs> and let's see what else we can do. <laughs> oh man. It's so, in the I mean, blood. It's a smart guy who makes bad decisions about his life. And it's a fascinating story. Well, the new book is Ivy League Counterfeiter, and uh, we can you find can get that. It on, you can get it on scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com. It's an ebook and an audio book. You can only get it there. It's not on Amazon. All right. And uh, Masters of the Game, uh, Grio TV. Yes. Hey, man, always a pleasure uh, yes. to talk to you. It's, it's always, uh, I, I love your perspective. 
Thank you. And uh, I greatly appreciate it. Oh, it's an honor to talk to you. You are one of the people who helped show me how to be a broadcaster. So just to, <laughs> just to be able to talk to you is extraordinary. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Torre. His latest novel, The Ivy League Counterfeiter, can be found at scrib.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And his latest show, Masters of the Game, can be seen on the Grio TV. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.